And today's scripture passage starts on page 12 in your bulletins. Uh, please join me in a prayer for illumination. Loving God, we gather today as your chosen to hear your word. Help us to grow in your love and bear your fruit as we humbly serve you with joy and grace. John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask in his name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. The Lord. In our preaching series this fall, we are studying the fruit of the Spirit to discover what the abundant life that Jesus promises uh, looks like. Last week, we considered love. Next week, Nate Hale will be preaching for us about peace. But today, we're looking at joy. This is one of the most challenging traits of the fruit of the Spirit for me to consider. Often, joy seems like something that's outside of my control based on the ups and downs of the circumstances of my life, maybe uh, how much sleep I've had, or the particular brain chemistry that I'm experiencing on any one day. But as we look at what the New Testament means by joy, we discover something more deeper and lasting than these things. Jesus says in verse 11 of our text today, I have said these things to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. So what does he mean by joy? There are, there are three questions that can help us 
help guide us as we think about this topic today. What is joy? Where do we look for joy? And how can we cultivate a life of joy? First, what is joy? Let's start to answer this question by first taking a closer look at what Jesus says uh, in this verse, verse 11. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Notice what Jesus says here. He, he speaks first about his own joy before he speaks about our joy. This leads to another question. What is the joy of Jesus that he says he wants inside of his disciples? Well, let's take a step back and look at the previous verses, verses 9 and 10. Here Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you uh, by my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. In both these verses, again, Jesus says something about us, but also about himself. As the Father has loved me, he says, so I have loved you. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This shows us that the, the joy that he goes on to talk about in verse 11, his joy that he puts to his disciples, arises from his own enjoyment of the Father's love and his response to that love in doing the Father's will. Jesus brings to his disciples the joy that he takes in God the Father, and he offers it to them. Seeing the joy of Jesus in this way, as something that belongs first to him, and is offered to us as a gift, has the potential to radically change how we think about joy, as well as love and, and obedience. So often we view these character traits as things we must somehow manufacture for ourselves. But what Jesus says is that joy and love and obedience pre-exist us in the life of the Trinity, in his relationship with the Father. In other words, we don't have to manufacture them. They already exist apart from us. Jesus already has joy in his life with the Father, and he wants to bring us into his joy. Let's think some more about this. If, if we approach joy in this way, it means that joy is no longer something that can only come to us in the right circumstances when life is good. Instead, joy becomes a gift that is available to us always. But it's often a gift that we don't seek. In his parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, Jesus shows us two ways that we often seek to manufacture joy for ourselves rather than receive it. superficial happiness in spending his father's money on his pleasures. He returns home empty. 
What he thought would give him joy turns out to be shallow and temporary. His elder brother shows us another way of seeking joy. In the, in the parable, the elder brother stays home and does everything right. He believes that he will find satisfaction in his obedience. He can even say that he never disobeyed his father's commands. But when the father throws a party for his younger brother after he returns, the elder brother refuses to go in. He's bitter and angry. So we see two strategies here. The younger brother seeks joy and happiness directly through things in this world. And he ends up in despair after losing everything. The elder brother seeks joy through his obedience, but he ends up self-righteous and unable to celebrate with others, to enter into their joy. The really joyful character in the parable is the father, but he also must suffer through being rejected and, and mistreated by his son. He's the one throwing the party. So what does this all teach us about the joy that Jesus promises? It shows us that this message of joy is first something for us to believe and receive from God, even before we experience it emotionally. Throughout the New Testament, we find this promise that joy can prevail for Christians, even in affliction. James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Paul says twice in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Hebrews 12 tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. So if joy is a gift, then we're grateful for it. Especially in the midst of our struggles and our heartache. I, I recognize that this might be a hard topic for you today, if you're weighed down by sorrow. In some ways, this is the most challenging of the fruit of the Spirit. But it, because it requires us not to look to ourselves for what we have, to look to God and, and confess our complete dependence on Him. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. So what does it really mean to rejoice in the Lord, as Paul says, or, or for our joy to be complete, as we hear Jesus say? Are verses like these saying that the Christian life should always be easy and calm? No, not at all. This brings us to the central image of John 15. God as the gardener, the vine grower, who is tending the vine. He cares for the vine, but he also prunes the vine. He removes dead branches, and he prunes other branches to make them even more fruitful. Let me give you an illustration about this. A couple of weeks ago, I had a review about 
of my failures as a gardener, this week I thought I would share with you a success. Though the success really belongs more to Linda than, than to me. In our backyard, in addition to the overgrown vegetable garden that I, I mentioned previously, we also have a flowering vine that we've enjoyed ever since we moved into the house. In the fall, it produces the most beautiful white flowers as it grows on a trellis and then along the top of our fence. The, few, the first few years that we lived in the house, we just kind of let the plant do its thing. This was my understanding. You know, plants grow in the summer, uh, they die in the winter, and then they come back in the spring. It seemed really simple to me. Belinda is much smarter than me when it comes to these things. And at some point she said, uh, you know, that plant is called a sweet autumn clematis, clematis. And we're actually supposed to prune it in the fall. I was like, really? Do we have to? But she went ahead and she did it. And when I saw what she did, I was pretty worried. She just hacked this thing down, like down to the ground. There was only a few inches left uh, sticking up out of the soil. And I thought, oh, well, well so much for that. Uh, but when it came back this year, I could hardly believe it. it you know, it's just exploded. I mean, it's probably five times as large as it ever was before, and right now it's just full of these beautiful, amazing flowers. Pruning, it turns out, is pretty important. And I'm sure that Jesus and his disciples knew this better than me. It's because, it's because God loves us, and is committed to our flourishing that he prunes us. Allowing even difficult experiences to enter our lives and then using them for our good. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on John, puts the care of God in this passage in this very striking way. The vine dresser, God, is never closer to the vine taking more thought over its health and productivity than when he has the knife in his hand. If this is true, if we can trust God like this, it means that joy is not incompatible with hardship and suffering. We would prefer to keep them separate. We're often like character Joy in the Pixar movie Inside Out. If you haven't seen it, Inside Out tells the story of a teenage girl who has moved with her family from Minnesota to San Francisco, and she's struggling with the loss of her friends and community. It's a brilliant movie. It takes place mostly inside of her head, where her emotions are personified as different characters. Joy, disgust, sadness, fear, anger. But the main character in the movie is Joy, who is struggling with the prominence of sadness inside this girl's head. At one point, Joy draws a circle for sadness on the floor and commands her, just stay inside the circle. But sadness refuses to stay inside the circle. It turns out that Joy has some things that she can only learn in relationship with sadness. The same is true for us. David Brooks put it like this in his book, The Road to Character. When most people think about the future, 
They dream up ways they might live happier lives. But notice this phenomenon. When people remember the crucial events that form them, they don't usually talk about happiness. It is usually ordeals that seem most significant. Most people shoot for happiness, but feel formed through suffering. When you believe that what is forming you is not just random suffering, but that you have a Heavenly Father who is a gardener of your life, committed to your flourishing, this truth has the power to lead you to joy. This kind of joy doesn't come as you focus on the things that you think you need for happiness. It's a byproduct that comes as you focus on the God who loves you in Christ. So how do we cultivate this kind of life? Jesus tells us. Fifteen times in John 15, Jesus refers to abiding in the vine, in him, in his love. What does it mean for us to abide in Christ? To abide in Christ means to rest in the truth that he is the source of your life. Just as the branch draws life from the vine, believers draw life from Christ. We've said that the, the way to joy is not to look to yourself, but to Christ. The same is true for all the other fruit that Christians are commanded to bear as his followers. He commands us to show love later in this passage. But the love that he commands, he also gives. For us to show love, we must receive love from the vine. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. When we abide in the love of Christ, we share in the eternal love between the Father and the Son, the Holy Trinity. The love that the Father has had his Son for all eternity belongs to you in your relationship with Christ. It's as we remember, believe, and rest in this identity as God's adopted children that we discover joy. joy. Joy and peace that can last. These are not realities that we achieve at the end of the Christian life or when we're doing well. They're gifts given from the very beginning before we've done anything at all. Christ doesn't just save us and then leave us on our own to bear fruit. By the Spirit of grace, Christ himself empowers us with his own life. He doesn't simply want what you can do for him while he remains at a distance. He desires an intimate union and communion with you. He calls you his friend. The greatest obstacle to cultivating this kind of joy in our daily lives is a hesitation to really believe that the God of the universe would want to be so close to us. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once told a parable about this that, that may help us understand something of what's going on in our hesitation. Kierkegaard said, Imagine a common day laborer living in a great kingdom ruled by an emperor. This day laborer dreamed that the emperor knew he existed. 
he would consider himself indescribably favored just to be permitted to see the emperor once. Uh, this would be something that he would relate to his children and grandchildren as the most important event in his life. But suppose the emperor did something unexpected. If the emperor sent for him and told him that he wanted him for his son-in-law, what then? Quite humanly, the, the day laborer would be more or less puzzled, self-conscious, and embarrassed by this request. He would find it very strange and smart. The emperor wants me for his son-in-law? He might think that the emperor wanted to make a fool of him, become a laughingstock of the whole city. In the parable, the day laborer working in the countryside recognizes the high and exalted place of the emperor. In the distance between them, he would be happy with an occasional encounter with the emperor. A, a little favor, that would make sense to the, emperor, to the laborer. The, the laborer might prefer for the emperor to visit the money, or maybe a letter as a relic, something he could show his friends and family to prove that he once met the emperor. But the prospect of becoming the emperor's adopted son is so much closeness. It's the kind of closeness requires him giving up his whole identity. It would completely change his life. You see, friends, this is what God has done for us in Jesus. He hasn't given us Jesus as a token of his love. Something that we can claim and take out and show our friends. I once met the king. In Jesus, God has claimed us. He has come close to unite himself to us in the most intimate way imaginable and has given us a new identity in the process. And he does this not by saving us from a distance, but by coming close and being willing to suffer for us on the cross. He is familiar with pain and with grief. And he asks us in return to give up anything that would stand in the way of his love for us and to love others as he has loved us. This is what we remember each week as we gather around this table for communion. The Eucharist reminds and invites us to believe that we are united in him by faith, that he is the source of everything that we need in life and death. The fruit of the Spirit grows out of our union with him. When you believe that he has put his joy into you as your Savior, then your joy may be complete because you're no longer looking to other things in this world to save you and be your ultimate joy. You will want what the Father wants, and you'll ask him for it in Christ's name, and he will joyfully provide it for you. And in this way, you will bear fruit that will last. The joy of the Lord will be your strength. Jesus says, No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And this is what Jesus has done for you. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your word, for your presence, for your grace. Help us today to look not to ourselves, but to Christ, and to abide.